Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Susan Teppala at Laurel Ridge Winery. It's August 20th, 2019. Susan, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, let's start with the most important question, which is why wine? I got into this through my husband's passion for wine. Um, I was 10 years younger than David, and when I met him, he was just um, planning our very first vineyard, which is a small, less than one acre patch of Chasladora. And um, I had grown up in an agricultural family. We, we had a small farm in Central Oregon. Mm -hmm. We have a large cattle ranch in Eastern Oregon in Joseph. And um, he explained you know, what his passion was and what he was going to be doing. He, he was in the commercial hardware business. And so I thought, well, he's probably gonna need some help because at least I've lived on a farm. So, um, so that's how it, it got started. Um, that, it, that was the life plan that he, that was his passion and the plan that he was on. Mm -hmm. And I was very happy with that. I was, he had met other women that weren't so comfortable with that. In fact, he was in, he had just divorced and it was largely because he had purchased this farm and was going to be living an agrarian lifestyle and raising grapes. And his former wife, had her family had owned a dairy mm -hmm. near Salem. It was out in Dallas, actually. Mm -hmm. And she absolutely abhorred the idea of returning <laughs> to a farm life. So she moved to Lake Oswego. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, um, and so I met David a few months later and we started dating then. What, what was it about it that drew him in? Why, was, why did he want that lifestyle so, so badly? You know, he had originally wanted to major in agriculture and go to Oregon State. His family owned National Builders Hardware, which is a commercial hardware company in Portland. Mm -hmm. And um, he wanted to, he spent his summers on wheat ranches in the Deschutes mm -hmm. Canyon mm -hmm. near Morrow. And um, he loved being outdoors, he loved farming. His parents didn't think that was suitable, and it certainly wasn't suitable if he was going to end up taking over the hardware business. So um, they nixed the idea of him going to Oregon State and majoring in agriculture. So he went to Lewis and Clark. Um, in a kind of a gotcha thing, he majored in philosophy and minored in chemistry, which he thought was even more irrelevant to a family business. Um, but in his junior year, you know how you do your junior year abroad? Mm -hmm. He did his junior year abroad in England, and he spent his off time, off campus time, um, going to France. And he had gone to both Burgundy and uh, Bordeaux, and he was really fascinated with how the English, drinking mostly French wines, of course, but how it was just folded into the normal course of the day, how it was an enhancement to their gracious living. You know, they'd have a um, some kind of a white wine before dinner, they'd have wine with dinner, they would have port after dinner, um, the ladies would have chocolates, the men would smoke a cigar. He just thought it was such, he, he fell in love with the whole idea of wine as an enhancement. Um, to You know, just the social aspect of it, to mm -hmm. share it with people, to um, 
at family gatherings with friends to collect wines, to show people the breadth. You know, it's something that you can do on any continent and you can do it for your entire life. So it is a hobby that you, that doesn't, it's timeless. Mm -hmm. So he, um, after he did two tours in Vietnam, and he got out and he used, he searched for years um, and he used his GI benefits to buy our farm, which is a total of 240 acres. Um, and he bought this farm in 1974. It was planted to very aging Italian plums and Bartlett pears. And those orchards were needing to be replanted. And so he just used that as a time to, he bought a, a D4 Caterpillar tractor. He used that and a chainsaw to take down the trees, push things over. It was a very happy six years because, you know, he blew it up or burned it up or pushed it into a pile. It was a lot of fun, I think. <laughs> and um, it, so he did all that with the idea of planting a vineyard. And when I met him in 1980, the land had all been cleared or mostly cleared. This first half of the farm that you're looking at now. And he had, was planting my our little vineyard that's next to my house, and he was planting the 50-acre vineyard that we planted the following year in 1981, which is the year that we got married. So that's how it all began. That was the start. I, I had very little experience with wine tasting up until meeting David. I had. I had dated other men in Portland and I had gone on a couple wine tasting dates. One had been to Ponzi Vineyard, which was right outside of Portland mm -hmm. on their original Beaverton mm -hmm. property. And Nancy had all her little kids, four little kids running around and she had a picnic table and a tablecloth and a cooler and she served the taste. And this informed my original tastings that I did in 1986. I did it exactly the way Nancy had done it, you know, eight years earlier. My other wine tasting experience is I'd gone with a fella up to Charles Curry Vineyards mm -hmm. and we had gone down the long driveway. This is where David Hill Estates mm -hmm. is now. We'd gone down the driveway and we'd parked in front and there was a tractor and a pair of legs sticking out the underneath the tractor. And um, we heard somebody say, are you here for wine tasting? In a really gruff voice, and my friend Gary said, yes, we would like to do tasting. He goes, not today, bunch of expletives. Can't you see I'm working on the expletive tractor? That was Charles Curry. I later found out that my husband had invested in Curry Vineyards mm -hmm. and changed the name to Reuters Hill, and he had done that in preparation for having his own vineyard and winery later. So in the late 70s, after he purchased this farm, he also invested with Charles Curry. Brad Shiley, who was a lawyer in Portland, also was part of that group. And they tried to recapitalize Curry Vineyards and get it on a more professional footing. Um, they ultimately could not do that because Charles was brilliant at thinking things up, but he was not good at executing. <laughs> So David actually ended up selling all the inventory that Charles had from the facility up there. He put, took out big ads in the Oregonian. And in 1978, which is just a couple years before I met David, he had sold all of the Curry inventory. He'd paid all the creditors. They hadn't, been, they hadn't had to declare bankruptcy or anything like that. And Charles then took his knowledge of, you know, fermentation sciences 
he opened Cartwright Brewing in Southeast Portland, which was very near our hardware company. Mm -hmm. And so he started Oregon's first craft brewery. He wasn't any more successful at that than he had been at the winery. But again, he was always the leader in terms of brilliant ideas. So um, David had that experience to help him prepare for you know, having the, the vineyard. So I was totally happy with the farming aspect of this. But in 1986, um, now we're producing, we had a fully functioning vineyard. We had 50 acres, it took up 50 acres, I think it was a 35 acre vineyard after you netted out for roads and spillways. But now that in eight, we had planted it in 1980, so six years in, it's producing a lot of fruit. Mm -hmm. And I was perfectly happy selling that fruit to somebody else and letting them make the wine. But David's point was there aren't any wineries in Oregon that are big enough to absorb all that fruit. So his proposal in the early part of 1986 was that we form a winery. And I was completely against this. For one thing, I was pregnant with Kira, who's our sales and marketing manager. She's inside now, and interestingly enough, now she's pregnant. But anyway, <laughs> so the life rolls on. But um, I, I was pregnant. I didn't want to do it. Um, the people that he had, were, he was talking to Helmut and Lila Wetzel that owned Chateau Bianca. Mm -hmm. They were just closing out their car cabinet business in Anchorage, and they were dear friends of David, and they had been fabulous customers of National Builders Hardware. So he was talking to Helmut Lila Wetzel about becoming partners. Mike and Kay Dowsett owned the Curry property. They bought it from the bank. Um, and David was helping Mike Dowsett, who was the uh, city attorney for the city of Beaverton. He was helping Mike and Kay run the vineyard over there. So they were proposed to be partners. So in June of 1986, um, we met at Mike and Kay's for the final determination because harvest was going to be in September October and it's already June so we needed a decision so we went to dinner with Mike and Kay and Helmut and Lilo and the proposal was that each family each of the three families would put in $75,000 and together we would capitalize a winery and our first crush would be 1986 so I was quite pregnant I was six months pregnant at that point and I said could I speak to my husband for a moment so we went over and sat in a little leather couch, which he later had to pull me out of, but <laughs> anyway. So I go, I was a lawyer. I was practicing law in Portland. I said, this isn't enough money. You cannot start a coffee stand with this amount of money. I, I mean, honestly, we're gonna lose our money. We'll lose our friends' money, which means we'll probably lose our friends. This is not a good idea, and I really don't wanna do this. And he looked at me like in the eyes. And he said, I understand. So we went back to the table, and Mike Dowsett said, so what do you guys want to do? And David goes, we're in. <laughs> My head whipped around so fast, I think I got a neck injury. I was, I was stunned. And he said, and she's taking a leave of absence, so she can do all the legal work. And he hands me my file, his file. And so by July 17th, of 1986, I'd incorporated us, I got us a federal permit, I got us a state permit, so basically in six weeks I did a year's worth of legal work because I was taking time off 
I don't know how you consider that time off. But anyway, so that was our inauspicious beginning as a winery. I think by September we were already out of money. We Our first tank was a retired dairy tank. Remember that the federal government put several dairies out of business because they thought we had too many. And in Tillamook there was a, a lateral, is that right, a horizontal, horizontal tank. But it was stainless steel. I mean it it had every it had the ports and you know places where you hook up hoses and things like that so it it could function easily as a wine tank but it wasn't a natural you know but that was our first wine tank i don't remember where we got the barrels i don't remember how we got a, a um, forklift i don't i don't i don't even remember how we did all that but within the next couple years our partners saw the handwriting on the wall this this was really hadn't been a very good idea from the beginning so we bought out our pro partners for their i think for their original investments and david and i then had had all the shares in in laurel ridge and went on from there brick by brick by brick by brick a little bit at a time amazing it, it has been an amazing it's been an amazing ride it's it's remarkable what you can do um if you have your eye on a single thing, you know, and every set, every step you take is towards that ultimate goal. So, I just want to back up for a minute to talking about the original vineyard, not not the the, the 50 acre vineyard that mm -hmm. you planted. So, tell me about the process of of planting that vineyard and and what 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 your role was in that and and how you were finding plant materials and how you were learning how to grow grapes and kind of getting diving in at the very beginning of that. So David was most of the way through that process when he um, I met him. He had hired Mark Benoit, that's Fred and Mary's oldest son, and Mark is deceased now. Um, but Mark had graduated from UC Davis, I believe, in viticulture, and I think that we were his first contract. So he was all of 23 years old or something like that. And the grapes that we chose, or David chose to plant, were Sauvignon Blanc, Riesling, and Pinot Noir. And I think it was Vadensville. I think the vineyard was entirely Vadensville, although I'm not sure. Um, and I don't know if there's any way to reconstitute, to come up with that, that data. Um, the vineyard was laid out with string, men and string, the old-fashioned way. And David was always upset that he didn't think it turned out to be a true north-south orientation, which is what he wanted, um, you know, which is kind of funny. But, but um, I, David, somewhere along the line, he and his brother Mark, who had a very small vineyard over 800 feet on the top of Shehala Mountain off Bell Road, somehow he and David, or David and Mark had taken a class. I don't think Shemekata had viticulture yet, but, but someplace along there I mean there was a like a master gardener something mm -hmm. or something they I know they had gone to Salem and I know for several weeks they had been learning about how to farm grapes so um, <laughs> here's another funny thing so he gets this vineyard planted in 1980 and we were engaged at that point in time but we weren't married yet and I told him well you know, you're going to have to water the grapes. And he goes, no, I, no, I took a class. This is dry land farming. And I go, well, okay. 1980 was a pretty warm year, and he had a very high death rate. It was very sad. 
and we had to reorder a lot of plants. Mm -hmm. And so I, he reordered the plants and then without even me asking, he looks at me and he goes, yeah, and I got a watering tank from <laughs> Rears Manufacturing. That's in Eugene. <laughs> because of course the little ones have no root system, you know, so anyway, so we learned a lot by trial and error. Um, you know, it was a thought at that time, these were all vines that were on their own roots. I don't know what nursery he had gotten them from. But at that time, it was believed that phylloxera would not exist north of the 45th parallel. The 45th parallel runs through Salem, Oregon, okay? <laughs> Apparently, somebody forgot to tell the louse that we're 20 miles north of that. Because, of course, the louse was thriving. And so by the mid-1990s, it was obvious. You could see the concentric circles radiating out from the initial plant that was stricken to larger and larger plants of the vineyard. So over time, it killed the entire vineyard. And in 2006 was the last time we harvested any fruit from the original vineyard, which was actually the year that David passed away. So posthumously, I took our last Pinot Noir um, from the vineyard. So that was kind of a sweet, <laughs> sweet thing. So. Tell me about the area when you started here. Uh, was there anybody else doing this in the area? Did you have any neighbors? No, and David was thought to be quite a, a, either a rebel, a maverick, a kook. I mean, people had different names for it. But um, if you think back to that time, there were vineyards in Washington County. You know, there was the original Curry Estate. Elk Cove was established. Kramer Vineyard was being established. Um, David Adelsheim was over here on Shehalem Mountains. Across the street for him, from him was Charles and Mary Kreth um, that had planted their vineyard with their little kids when they were just tiny. Um, the Adams, I think it's, it's either I think it's Carol and Peter Adams. She was a writer for the Oregonian. Um, they had a small vineyard on Shehalem Mountains in Dundee. You had um, Knutson Erath, a um, couple others. But there was nobody this far west. There was nobody on Willakenzie Loam. It was thought that Will Willakenzie Loam was completely inert and unsuitable, would not sustain grapes. So it, it was thought that it wouldn't sustain fruit. Um, so David took an enormous risk, but he felt that his research was good enough. Um, plus he'd had conversation, conversations with Charles Curry. Um, and he, f he felt confident that, that this was going to work. I mean, it's proven to way better than just work. It's awesome. Um, but I think a lot of people just wrote David off from the very beginning, thought that you know this was going to be a disaster, I think is basically what most people thought in terms of farming grapes here. Mm -hmm. What about the industry at that time? You mentioned a lot of the names in the area. What, did it did it feel like you're entering into an industry that was that had was cohesive, and or was it a lot of just a lot of people making grapes on their own kind of a thing? Well, it was it was very small, but I mean, up in Washington County where we were, you know, we had the Washington County Winery Association, and um, we used to have meetings. I'm Marge Volstek, Corinne Gross. Nancy Ponzi, Virginia Fuller, and I, 
had monthly meetings. Montanor was also a part of that group, but they didn't usually send anybody. So we had little passports at Thanksgiving. We would, you know, if they stamped all six, then they got a Christmas ornament or something like that. So these were our very initial marketing efforts and trying to build a name. Um, the idea that it could be like an enormous industry, that it would pump billions of dollars into Oregon's economy each year, that it would stretch from Hermiston to Talon, Oregon, that it would consume, you know, thousands of acres in the Willamette Valley. I, I, maybe David had an idea that that's what would happen. I, I personally had no idea mm -hmm. that that's what would happen. Mm -hmm. So you talked about six years in, you make the decision to start making wine, you have your partners come in. Tell me about the, the process of, of making wine for the first time. I assume there were similar hurdles to the growing grapes for the first time in terms of trial and error. You know, our initial winemaker was Rich Cushman. <laughs> and um, I don't know how Rich pulled that off, to tell you the truth. And maybe he remembers more about it than I do. Um, by that point in time, by the time we actually crushed, I'd had a baby on September 27th. So I was kind of out of the loop. I do remember certain things about that. I remember that we harvested the Gewürztraminer up there and we hooked up a bunch of hoses and we were trying to get it into some vessel. And I remember that there was a leak in the hose and mm. we kept putting a tumbler underneath there, you know, and we we're basically just drinking the must, which was awesome. You know, it was <laughs> delicious. So I do remember how rinky dink it was, you know, it, it was, crazy rinky-dink, but we made wine, we made sparkling wine, which was Rich's specialty. So how we did that, I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. And then what about selling it once you had made it? I assume that was also a challenge. Oh, so yeah, then 1987 rolls around and we have wine in the bottle. So this is when I drew on my experience with Nancy Ponzi. I had a little baby in the thing that you know, rocks back and forth. So we got a picnic table, we got a cooler, I've got the baby in the deal so I can tap her with the foot, and I, ha I put out my array. We had Gewürztraminer, Riesling, Pinot Noir, and we hadn't disgorged any sparkling wine yet, it was still in Tourage. And I think I had one more thing, I think I had four. Mm -hmm. I wish I could find these notes because I opened up my tasters, so I had a, a little money box and I started with like $100 in there and I opened up my tasters and I subtracted that and then I added my sales and after adding my sales and subtracting my tasters, my net for the day would be like $5.06. But I made it balance, you know, it balanced to the penny. So, you know, I'd be there all day and we started in June of 1987, so Kira was nine months old when we started. And, um, you know, people were used to that driveway. They were used to coming to what had been Curry Vineyards and then Reuters Hill, so people knew of it. And I would get some guests and I would get sales from guests and stuff, but I never charged for my time. In fact, this is true to this day. I've never been paid for an hour's worth of work for Laurel Ridge Winery. I, I, I don't even, I've never even kept track of it. I have no idea, but um, yeah, it was a very fun, sweet beginning. So that's how we, that's how we did it. And I, initially we were only open on weekends and then later on we had more wine and later on 
um, David took over the tasting room. He was doing the farming and the tasting room, so that became, he, we had sold our interest in National Builders Hardware. We did that to start the winery, basically. Mm -hmm. So um, he moved over into sales, so he did sales and outside work, so. Mm -hmm. We all work 24 hours a day, a lot. <laughs> So at what point did the location shift entirely to here? At what point did you start, did you put up the winery tasting room here and, and shift, the, shift Laurel Ridge to this location? So in 1999, by then Mike and Kay had sold the property and the purchasers were the Stoinovs, Mylan and Jean Stoinov, mm -hmm. and I believe they still own it. Mm -hmm. So initially we thought that we were going to sell the winery to them. But ultimately, we didn't. So um, we left for a vacation um, the first part of June of 1999, and we were in Europe for a couple weeks with the kids. And we just decided that although it was going to be a huge hassle, what we needed to do was take down the barn that was here, put up a winery and tasting room, and just move the facility, move the whole business over to our farm which would just be so much easier in so many ways. I mean, trucking a couple hundred tons of grapes to Forest Grove was not that easy anyhow. Mm -mm. So, um, so what we did was basically we took a year off from selling wine. Um, while we were in Europe, we were in the process of building the six bay shed. That's now our temperature controlled warehouse. At the time it was a slab and just a building and we um, we got the building going while we were in Europe, and then when we got back from Europe, we started moving all our equipment and wine and whatever. We just started, there's six roll-up doors over there, and so we just started stuffing it full of our things. And then over the next few months, we designed and poured the concrete and built this building. We opened up um, for sales on Memorial Day of 2000. And we haven't, except for Christmas, um, we, have, we haven't been closed since. So we've been running a winery here ever since. So your initial role in the winery, of course, was for your legal guidance and expertise. What, uh, what, as it evolved, what was your role in the business and how did that sort of change over the years? Well, I went back to law after I had my two kids, so I was no longer available except on weekends to do sales or anything else, really. Um, I, when I, after my younger daughter was born, I went to work for the state of Oregon as an administrative law judge, and I worked there for 23 years. So um, it was a great way to use my legal background, but I could fit it into an eight to five job instead of being a downtown lawyer, which is a 60-hour week. So um, throughout, you know, throughout that time, I mean, I helped David with labels and ideas. I made sure that we, our corporation stayed up to snuff. I did some regulatory work, I, you know, label approval and some things like that. But I really was like a drop-in, drop-out kind of person because, I mean, except for special projects, it was really David's full-time job. Mm -hmm. um, so, and you know, the kids were raised on the farm. The kids could run the gator before they could run anything else. So, um, he, you know, he used to put each kid on the fender of the tractor and drive them around and, you know, work on, work on stuff on the farm. So they were just raised out here. But I, I was working in town and taking care of the kids and doing all the 
other stuff that runs a household. So I wasn't that much involved. Um, David came down with cancer sometime in 2000, and what he had was a very unusual form of adenocarcinoma, which is in your interstitial tissues, and his was infiltrating into his colon. So it was called colon cancer, but it really wasn't colon cancer, it was adenocarcinoma. So he had courses of chemotherapy, and he had surgeries and, and things like that. But he was such an optimistic person. I mean, the, the reason that he started a winery with such little capital or bought a piece of property that was totally unproven, I mean, he was so incredibly optimistic always about everything that he just thought, oh, yeah, cancer, whatever. So um, his cancer returned in the fall of 2005, and now it really wasn't in a situation where it was beatable. And so over Christmas, he was in the hospital at OHSU, so I was going back and forth. And we brought him home on hospice, and the day before, or, or that night that he was on hospice, he gave me the keys, which is the first time I actually held his keys, and he said, I'm going to take you over to the winery tomorrow, and I'm going to show you how to run it, just in case this doesn't go well. He was on hospice, so I didn't think it was really going all that well. So I said, that would be great and if you would show me what to do. And he passed away about an hour later. So I thought, well, I didn't get my training. <laughs> so I actually, you know, when I could get the courage up a few days later, I came over and I sat down at his desk and I thought, I, I did have his keys in my hand and I thought, I bet you answer the phone. Um, you probably have to get the mail. You know, I just started with the basics. I looked through his drawers and I saw what was in there and, you know, I just, I just started where I could mm -hmm. and put one foot in front of the other and just let, well, you know, he did it. it it's obviously doable. So I think he, when he passed away, he had about $837 in his personal checking account, and there was about two, little more than $2,000 in the business account. So he had told me that if I couldn't do it, it was okay, and he gave me, um, he said that he had sold a certain amount of gallonage of Pinot Noir to Willamette Valley Vineyards, and that Forrest would come and get it. Forrest has now passed away of cancer. Um, David was in within ten dollars. He knew exactly how many gallons he had back there. Forrest put a gallon meter on it, and it was just absolutely perfect. David knew everything that was in there, so he had told me to go through with that contract, sell off the rest of the bulk wine, do this, that, and the other thing. You know, sell the inventory the same way that he had sold the Charles Curry inventory. Don't go bankrupt because that'll screw everything up, um, and then get to the bottom of everything, and then sell sell the farm and, and I told him well you know if you want me to do that I'll do that I had no intention of doing that really you know I was going to as a last ditch thing yes I would have but I mean honestly I, that was not my first strategy I was just gonna you know pretend that I could do it <laughs> and see what happened so it's so what did happen you know it's been fantastic it's been awesome. Um, the business has grown. One of my kids is here full time. Um, my nephew is our winemaker. Um, 
the business has grown. We've replanted our vineyards. We've got, um, you know, the future looks great. Mm -hmm. Super exciting to see another generation of people get excited about wine. Um, and now maybe even another generation after that. <laughs> Incredible. Let's talk about that aspect of it, about the kind of raising the family on and around and w through the business. Uh, t did, you, did, you th did you have an idea in the beginning that it might continue on as a family business? We always thought that it might, but David had, and his brother had basically been arm twisted into taking over their parents' business. Mm -hmm. um, they bought their parents out at pretty favorable terms, but still they'd had to buy the business. Mm -hmm. And um, I think David was a natural in the hardware business. He, he was very mechanical. They had 18,000 line items and he could have probably used every one of them. He knew every screw, every piece of equipment. He had his own wood shop. He could operate table saws and all that kind of stuff. I think it was a less natural for his brother Mark, but because they'd been made to do it, it had lost some of its luster for both of them. Mm -hmm. And so we were in a position where we wanted to set something up so it was possible, but we certainly didn't want to expect that our kids would do that. We wanted to raise them as best as we could in a rural environment and, you know, give them the benefit of living outside and having animals and, you know, making mud pies and all that kind of stuff, you know. That's kind of how I was raised, so a very wholesome childhood is what we wanted for them but we and if they took to it it would be a gift mm -hmm. and but we didn't expect it of them um, and it took a long time for that to actually come to fruition there was a period of time there for for about 10 years that I didn't do that much with the winery I just held it at about 22 to 2500 cases annually because I wasn't sure what was going to happen. And if you'll notice, there are other people my age in the valley that are in a similar situation. You know, you reach a retirement age when you really, you, you can't work as much as you did and maybe you don't want to. And if your kids are not interested, then you have to have some other exit strategy. And normally that means that you're for sale. And if you're for sale, that means you're for sale at whatever price and whoever can afford to buy that. So that could be an Australian company, a French company. It could be anybody that comes in and sit, comes in as your purchaser. And so I kind of held it in, in a limbo type fashion for many years. Kira took a long time to graduate from college and she took, then she went into a, an, uh, another career she worked for all high-end retailers. The last high-end retailer that she worked for was um, Aveda, and she was managing a store in Boise, Idaho. At some point along in there, she decided that she wanted to come back. Um, and I said, well, if you want to, but I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna ask you to do that. And she, she first started coming home by plane and coming once a month or so, and, and then she just finally cut the cord and she said, I'm coming back. So. And from there I said, well, okay, if you're, get, if you're in, then I'm all in. So I, my last year that I was still working or within the last year or two, that's when I refinanced the business, got the development loan, replanted the vineyard. I said, okay, we're gonna go all in then. So that's what we did. Wow, <laughs> that's amazing. 
Uh, I want to back up for a second. There was a question I meant to ask earlier about about David as a winemaker. So you you he came in with a little bit of knowledge, but but clearly had to grow as a winemaker in order to make it. So tell me about that kind of process of him learning how to make wine and 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 improving on that as as he was developing the business. Well, you know, it was kind of funny. This is where his degree in philosophy and minor in chemistry really came in handy. Whoever thought that there would be a natural pairing, but it worked out perfectly. So. Um, he never really trusted his knowledge of chemistry and enology to do it entirely on his own. I think my nephew is our eighth or ninth winemaker. We started with Rich Cushman. Um, we had Paul Gates, Pascal Valadier, um, Jason Bull, Margaret, a lady from Australia whose name I can't remember. Anyway, it goes on and on. And our, our current winemaker is Eric Ertl, who is my middle nephew, my my brother's middle son. Um, David, however, was so knowledgeable about the chemistry that he was a really, he was a good pair, you know, a good sous chef mm -hmm. for the winemaker. So he was able to run the winery usually with um, the winemaker and him and maybe in the fall add a few people to go through crush. But um, he was physically very strong and so the, it was like a two-man crew, and he did that the entire time up until his passing. Um, he and the winemaker were ran the show, and then David would he would work in the back in the morning, and then he'd come out and run the tasting room in the afternoon. There, there was a couple in here a few days ago that remember David. We still get people who don't know that he's passed mm -hmm. that visited us from some faraway place and expect to see his little smiling face back there we say well unfortunately we think he's still in the building we still feel his presence but we say well unfortunately physically he's not he's not here so that's sad yeah it's amazing they remember him though and, and he and made an impression, impression on people right he did so you you you, you kind of you, you're kind of an inauspicious start into the wine industry you not enough capital you kind of lost your partners early on Tell me at what point you felt like you had made it, like Laurel Ridge was a thing that was, that was here to stay, that, that, you could, that you could kind of feel comfortable in the business. Ask me that in five years. <laughs> we haven't gotten there yet? We're still getting there. Um, I mean, we're obviously in much better shape and, uh, you know, we're secure. But um, I don't really feel that we have quite gotten there yet. I feel that there are a few more bricks that I need to add to that chimney before I can say, okay. And and that's and that's why I'm still holding on as tightly. That's why I'm still working every day. I don't want to turn it over until I know it's something that they are not going to have to be as stressed out about as their dad and I were, was. I don't know what the proper word there is. As you look back, um what are some of the most memorable moments here, or some of your, the moments you look back on with the most pride? You know, it's just, um, it is such a joy to, to have your family and friends return. It's such a, um, a validation to say, hey, you know, I had my family for Christmas and we served Laurel Ridge. It, it's just awesome to be a part of people's lives. I'm very proud of that. It's, um, you know, 
I feel the same as if I baked a batch of cookies for my neighbor to take over to their house. I've made you something and you're enjoying it. And it's just, it's a thrill to, to do that. The other thing is to be a part of the economy and to watch our business grow is kind of fun. I proposed yesterday that we have a Laurel Ridge parade because we used to have no equipment. I mean, but I said, you know, we've got two tractors, we've got two forklifts, we've got two pickups, we've got a delivery van, we have a ride-on lawnmower, we have a Gator, we have a Polaris. I mean, if we just pull, if we just drove around all the th motorized things that we have now, it's amazing. We've we've created a little empire. <laughs> and it's so fun to have started with absolutely nothing and to now have all these you know just looking at our pumps and hoses and all our barrels and it's amazing to have created a little empire and we know we're an important part of the economy now um, you know we're giving people a lifestyle a place to work you know something to come to we know that we're playing our part in people's lives it's very rewarding we talked before we started the interview about your your list of graduates. So tell me about tell me about being a resource to other people who are getting started in the industry. You know that's been fun too. Um, gosh, we've had Prevay and Carabella and Luckado and oh, I don't know the hundreds and hundreds of them. And David was so generous with his time, um, and he was so happy to share the facility and. You know, all they've all gone on to do great things. They've all got their most have their own facilities now, and it's it's just been awesome. And they helped us too. I mean, we learned along the way. I mean, when some of these people started, you know, when David passed away, for instance, the building was not secure. We had a blue tarp for a door. You know. Um, we didn't have pavement, we didn't have landscaping, we didn't have a wedding garden, you know, and we had people who wanted to make wine with us in very primitive conditions and, you know, we learned and they helped us and so it was definitely not a one-way street. It was, it was great to have them. When we were when we were at Styring, it was interesting to hear their their description of, of meeting David for the first mm -hmm. time and how kind of life-altering it was for them at a time when they were kind of turmoil about what to do with their lives. So I imagine it has to be kind of meaningful on your end to yeah. have played that kind of role in, in their lives and others along the way. Steve and Kelly are awesome. And I think that they, they were, they sense David's enthusiasm and passion for this industry. And I actually think it's, it really was the, the one little more thing that they needed. They knew that they were going to make a change, and it was. And they knew they had this idea. And David's, um, his just his, his belief that this will work. It's good. You know, it's it's can it's you can make it happen. His his sense of that, it, I think, really helped them get over the hump. And they've done a great job. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So we mentioned earlier that you, that you, you moved into a place that was, you, you didn't have any wine or grape neighbors here. So tell me about watching the area around uh, grow up in, the, in this area and, uh, and some of the changes you've seen. You know, it's amazing. I mean, um, I, I sometimes worry because I, I wonder if people are, you know, planting on too marginal a soil or on an aspect that's probably not that great. I, I do worry that it may have become somewhat, you know, like 
a popular thing to do, you know, and but on the other hand, I mean, I, I look at some awesome vineyards. I drive by, drive by awesome vineyards every day as I'm running errands, and I'm amazed at the number of vineyards that I see. Um, very, very successful, and the quality of the fruit and the quality of the winemaking that's going into that, the whole industry has blossomed. I mean, I think most, probably in the beginning, a lot of the wines that were served were probably commercially flawed and probably didn't really deserve to be sold, but it was such a new industry, people wanted to say they had an Oregon wine. But now these wines stand up to anything in the world. These wines are excellent wines. Um, so I think the industry should be incredibly proud of itself. Um, I don't know how much bigger it will get. Mm -hmm. I really don't know what, what will happen. So. Do you, as you look towards the future, do you have concerns? Are you optimistic? Are you, are you pessimistic? Are, are there things that on the horizon that are you worried about? Or do you think it's a pretty bright future? I think it's a bright future for Laurel Ridge and for, for most of the industry. Um, you know, wine is a healthy component. It's a component of a healthy life. And there are markets, there are people that have not been able to enjoy or experience this. And I think that as we get good trading partners and export wines and import wines and things like that, I think more and more people will be able to experience the joy of Oregon wines. So I, I'm thinking that we're good long term. You mentioned a couple, a couple more bricks in the chimney here at Laurel Ridge before mm -hmm. you feel comfortable turning it over. Mm -hmm. What do you see as you look ahead here for Laurel Ridge? Uh, what, what, do you, you have a, a timeline in mind for when you can kind of hand the keys over? No, because our original timeline, uh, I wanted to get to a 5,000 5, case winery, 5,000 cases sold. I wanted to do that in the first three years that we were in business, 1989. So we're behind on my timeline. So I threw out my timeline and I just, um, you know, we'll get there when we get there. We're, we're about there now. Um, and so I say, well, I just need to make it 7,500 cases a year sold, and then I need to make it 10,000 cases a year sold. And then when I get to 20,000 cases a year sold, I need to build the other half of this building. There's another fermentation hall that I want on the west end of this one. And then I need to redo all this so that the loading dock is over there. So I have plans that go out like 50 years. Um, but, and I might not have that much time left but how long it actually takes us to get to these little milestones, I, I just don't know. But so far we're not going backwards, so, so if it's a little bit of progress, that's, that's great. What, uh, what kind of, as you may know, Linfield has a wine studies program now. We have a wine studies major here yes. watching this with us. Uh, what kind of words of wisdom would you have for someone who is entering the Oregon wine industry today? Gosh, you know, you know, the, the best thing to do is to just get started in it somewhere because the, the industry is so vast, you could go from any place like a very technical position, you could work in someone's lab um, and basically be a scientist all the way through, you know, being the 
social media person specializing in just you know taking the pictures and getting it out on Instagram and doing that there's so many aspects to the business but the basic thing is to just get in and get started and then see what you like about it and then if you need additional if you need some training because you're going to do that or you need you need enology or viticulture viticulture is my passion you know I don't ride the tractor, but I'm really, I mean, planning the vineyard and figuring out how, you can't make good wine out of crappy grapes, so figuring that, that whole aspect out. So if you, if you like the aspect of farming, but you've got to get in and get started. Mm -hmm. And then you can figure out where, you know, where you best fit in. So that's all the questions that I have for you, Susan. Is well, there anything? Is there anything I should have asked that I didn't? Anything we didn't cover that we should have covered? No, I think you're pretty comprehensive. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time. Oh, for my your pleasure. Answers, for all your great stories uh, and your great advice at the end there. Uh, we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast, and thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.